The message comes to us today from 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. And it reads like this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of the God provides, abides forever. Hallelujah. This is the blessed word from our Lord. So we continue in this series called Toxic and the sermon today, uh, which is called Unchecked Desire. Unchecked desire. There are some things uh, in life that cannot coexist. Let me name a few. You cannot love Duke and Carolina at the same time. You cannot be a Clemson and a South Carolina fan at the same time. Amen, Charlie? You cannot uh, pull for the Vikings and the Green Bay Packers at the same time. Uh, I'm in MacDowell County, so I have to say you can't be a Ford man and a Chevrolet man at the same time. It's either the Cowboys or the Redskins. It's Texas or Texas A&M. It's the Steelers or the Cincinnati Bengals. Experience that one firsthand. And John says you cannot love the world and love the Father. You can't do it. You cannot straddle the fence on this one. This is a definitive statement in Scripture. You will either love God the Father or you will love the world, but you will not. You cannot love both. And so many people try to straddle the fence. Verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So why? Why can't you have your cake and eat it too? John then in verse 16 tells us why. For all that is in the world. For all that is in the world. And then he defines the world. If you've ever wondered what's the world, here it is defined by John. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, I want to remind you of what Will mentioned last week with this word desire. If you have an old translation, it's rendered lust in that translation. The word desire by itself, I seldom do this, but I'll give you the Greek, is thumia in in the New Testament. Uh, If it's lust, it's epithumia. And epi is a prefix which means over and above. Over desire is used then 38 times in the New Testament. Only three times is it used in a positive way. In this passage in 1 John, we're talking about over desire. Or some of you uh, may, your translations may call it lust. 
we in our culture are used to using the word lust only with sexual desire, but that isn't the case. You can have an over desire or a lust for multiple things. And John categorizes them into three broad categories this morning. First of all is the desire to enjoy things. The desires of the flesh. Uh, Let me explain for a moment. What is the flesh? The flesh is your sinful nature. It's what you have without trying to have it. You were born with it and you will die with it. It never goes away. Your sinful nature is exceedingly sinful and will never not be sinful. If you could be born and you could then when you come to Christ have that sinful nature extracted, what a life that would be. But it doesn't work that way. Now, we are not without hope, but the dynamic that is set up, some of you are unaware of. Because this is what happens when you trust Christ as your Savior, you get a brand new nature. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When you come to God by faith in Jesus Christ, you get a new nature. And then this is what happens. Civil war breaks out. You see, this surprises some of you, and some of you wonder why your biggest battles came after coming to Christ. It is because in you is a sinful nature that still wants to sin. And in you now is a new nature that only longs for righteousness. And when you come to Christ, your sinful nature and your new nature then engage in a war. If you've ever battled in your mind a temptation to sin, you know what I'm talking about. If you've ever had the wrong desire and the right desire duke it out with one another, you know what I'm talking about. This is why the most miserable people on the planet aren't unbelievers who sin. No, believers who do. Why? Unbelievers do not have the spirit in them checking them on sin as believers do. This desire to enjoy things is a good desire. But when it becomes an over desire, it becomes sin. You say, what do you mean? The desire to have sex with your spouse, good desire. The desire to have sex with someone other than your spouse, over-desire. The desire to have sex with a member of the opposite sex, good desire. The desire to have sex with a member of the same sex, over-desire. The desire as you develop as a teenager for sex, God-given, good desire. Carrying out on that desire before you're married, over desire. So we all say, okay, but how about this one? The desire for food, a good desire. The desire to gorge and overeat, over desire. 
You say, Jerry, why do you use food and sex in the same conversation? Because almost every single time in the New Testament, the word self-control is used. It is used with food or sex. Gluttony or sexual sin. Uh, The desire to enjoy things. John says the over-desire of that is a mark of the world. Uh, Secondly, the desire to obtain things. The desires of the eyes. The desire to obtain things. The desires of the eyes. Tim Keller says materialism and greed is an excess concern for... Worry about love of need for money and possessions. Materialism is not possessing possessions. Materialism is when possessions possess you. Let me say that again. Materialism is not possessing possessions. Materialism is when possessions possess you. You see, the problem with materialism is we hardly ever, if ever, see it in ourselves. But we almost always find it in others. We seldom see materialism in us. We often see it in others. Soren Kierkegaard, that philosopher, says riches and abundance come hypocritically clad in sheep's clothing, pretending to be security against anxieties, and they then become the object of anxiety. They secure a man against anxieties just about as well as the wolf that is put to tend in the sheep. Do you know when I've seen the rich who have, without realizing it, leaned on their riches more than God, begin to realize their riches don't work anymore? Sickness. It's interesting what sickness will do because all of a sudden the rich man, the rich woman realizes my money can't buy my health. I have a problem that money can't solve And for years without realizing it, I've leaned into money to solve every problem I've had. They just didn't realize that money was their go-to. So how do you test yourself on this? The Bible gives one guideline, a baseline, if you will, to test yourself on this. The tithe. It's the tithe. Uh, The question is, does tithe occur in the New Testament? And the answer is yes, Uh, once and early. Luke 11, 42, Jesus says, But woe to the Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done, meaning to tithe, without neglecting the others, justice and the love of God. So, so how does the tithe work to help us to be non-materialistic? Uh, let me explain like this. We grew up growing everything we ate, um, almost everything. Mom went to the grocery store once a week and came out back in the day, paper bags, right? About this tall, came out with one paper bag that she bought for six people in our family a week. That's how much we grew 
And many of you know Diane Brooks and Glenda Glenn. And Diane and Glenda lived across from us with their mom, Judy, single mom, raising these two girls. And so when we moved over here, dad insisted we had lots of land in Tennessee. Dad insisted that we would still grow a lot of food. So he found people and friends one year, no lie. One year, we dug 50 bushels of potatoes in one year. Like, what are you going to do with those? One day, we picked five bushels of green beans in one day. No lie. So that's how we grew up. And I still remember I would go out, pick the fresh tomatoes, pick uh, the squash, pick the cucumbers, pick uh, making you hungry, pick all that stuff. And dad would say, now, son, you take this amount and this amount and this amount and go across the street and give it to Judy and those girls. Every single time. Every single time we, we give away at the very outset. Part of our first fruits of our garden made it across the street to Judy raising her two daughters. Uh, what did that teach us to do as a family? Depend on the rest. We could give that away, still have enough to eat. My dad at the time, there were five of us in the home and he earned $18,000 a year for five of us. We, we just lived by that rule. I, I remember a visiting preacher coming to the church and dad felt that his suit was a little worn. I still recall my dad walking to his own closet and saying, here, they happen to be the same size here. You take any suit you want, it's yours. I'll never forget that. I think the one that that made me angry reveals my heart was dad preached. We lived in Tennessee. He preached in Weaver, Vegas, Weaverville. And we drove across 19. There was no 26 then. It was a curvy road. There were no restaurants at all. And every Sunday night, these wonderful people would cook a delicious meal, like a full-on meal. And they would sit it in our little Nova, our two-door Nova hatchback. And you'd get in the car and the aroma of this food. Like I made it through Sunday night service for the meal home. I'd sit there and go, yes. We get to eat. Well, that night we had a visiting preacher. And I get in the Nova and I smell no food. Where's the food? We gave it to Donnie. What? Him? I was livid. Why did he get our food? That's what's going through my mind. Our family drove home without a meal to eat. Why? Because we gave it. The baseline is the tithe. If you will learn to live, it's not a hard and fast rule. It's not like God has given a rule because he's running out of money. No, if you, if you learn to live on 90% and trust God 
with the 10% you give away, there's something that begins to happen in you. That's what God is teaching. Why? Because at the core of the Christian faith is a giving God. A giving God. For God so loved the world that he what, church? Oh, you can do better than that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Uh, Now, as they were eating, Matthew 26, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and what? Gave it to the disciples and said, take eat. Uh, This is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. If you've trusted Christ as your savior, the reason you want to give is because you have been given to. Uh, Romans 8 verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I love what Tim Keller says. The difference between Christianity and religion is that Christianity is both attractive to the world and attractive did to the world say what do you mean well we had some storms this week didn't we any of you lose power yeah a few of you tammy wall sends me a text was the day after the severe storms and she said jerry did you know that riverside right down the road a mobile home community has no power i go to the duke energy map when i look it up 90 homes no power the power will be restored at 6 p.m. It's supposed to be 90-some degrees that day. Many of these homes are metal boxes. These people will cook in those if there's absolutely no power. Tammy said, God, will take a generator over. What do we need to do? So I called in Alan Michael. I called Joshua Kilgo, and, uh, our intern, and I said, we've got to get something done. And so I called Jeff. Barnes, who owns the Riverside Convenience Store, and I said, Jeff, uh, we need some ice. He's got a big ice machine. We need some ice. We're going to go buy these styrofoam coolers. We're going to hand out. If, if a home needs a full cooler, we'll just give them a full cooler of ice and waters. And we went, and, and, and uh, Jeff said, I've got the coolers. Don't worry about that. I've got the ice. Just bring the waters. And so Joshua shows up and grabs all this stuff and just starts going door to door to door. We're from Grace. It's hot today. Your power's not going to be on for a while. What do you need? Why do we do that? Why? Because at the center of the Christian faith is a giving God. We can't help but do that. We can't help but do that. Could I say something to you this morning? If for the last 15 years we had not invested so much money in benevolence and food pantry at this church, we could have built the building five years ago. That's not an exaggeration. Just those two items alone this year are $50,000. Just those two. You, as a church family, just grace in the past four to six weeks have given 
over $10,000 to feed hungry kids in this community. Let me say something to you. If sacrifice ever stops being the center of who we are, we lock the doors, we go home. There's nothing left to do for this church. Amen? It's who we are. We cannot help but go. We cannot help but give. You say, Jerry, I wonder, I wonder, am I materialistic? Let me ask you a question. The first one is going to be the obvious one. The second, not so obvious. Do you spend too much? The second one, do you save too much? It's the overspenders and the hoarders who are relying on money instead of God. You said, Jerry, what? How much should I spend? How much should I save? How much should I give? I can't tell you the answer to that question. God will. I promise you that. He will. He will. Uh, The desire to obtain things is followed by the pride of life, the desire to achieve things. The desire to achieve. We are a church full of achievers. And I love being your pastor. I look around every Sunday when I preach and I see successful school teachers and I see successful businessmen and businesswomen and successful small business owners. Uh, education administrators. I see uh, those who work in business, uh, stay-at-home moms who homeschool wonderfully their children. I uh, see troopers and policemen and sheriff's deputies, uh, so many different kinds of people, nurses, doctors, all of you, when I talk to you, take seriously what you do. I love that. You're hardworking people. You seek to achieve and seek to attain. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But hear me, overachieving is a sin. What? Yes, overachieving, which is applauded in our culture, is listed here as a sin. Well, how do we know when we are overachievers? Pride of life. How do we know when it's pride of life and not just taking pride in what we do? All right? How how do we know that? And here's where I think we can begin to gauge it. The word perfect. Let me explain I've got to have the perfect wedding. I I have to have the perfect marriage. We've got to have the perfect family. I must have the perfect career. I must lead the perfect medical practice. I must make perfect grades, the perfect investment strategy, the perfect life group, the perfect business plan. And God forbid if you're sitting here and you think you must have the perfect church, 
because it ain't us. How about this? The perfect reputation. The perfect house. The perfect ministry. If it isn't perfect, you're not satisfied. That is an over-desire to achieve. You say, what do I do about it? This may be the most heady theological part of the sermon today. You must look to the only perfect one, Jesus Christ. He was the only overachiever who overachieved without sinning. And you will either rest in his perfect sacrifice for your sins on the cross, or you will live with an internal, unbeatable dissatisfaction that you just can't ever perfectly get it right. There is no other way. There is no other way to deal with the gnawing desire to achieve than Christ. Peter had something to say about that. And if you want to talk about an overachiever, it's Peter. He's the only disciple who walked on water. Did you realize that? I mean, Peter is the only one who walked on water. It was Peter who was up at the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was was just transformed right before his very eyes. And he was like, let's build something and hang out here a while. It was Peter who uh, uh, was able to do some pretty remarkable things and open up his mouth when he should have kept it closed. Peter was that guy. He's also the only disciple that Jesus called Satan. So you might add that to his uh, list of things on his resume because he told Jesus, no way will you die. And Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. It was Peter who said, I'll stick with you till the bitter end. And Jesus said, before the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. And it was Peter who went out and wept bitterly. It is Peter who stands up and preaches the first sermon in the early church. And 3,000 people come to Christ in a single day. And it's Peter who writes 1 Peter 2, 22 through 25. You have to read that with Peter's uh, biography in your mind, he's talking of Jesus, his friend. He committed how much church? No sin. Uh, We call that perfect. Could we all go right now? He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And just in case Peter's thinking you you might miss it, I'm going to put two pronouns in the next sentence. That's why the translation renders it he himself. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. 
our sins he bore in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed by his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls Please hear me this morning. If you live in this world of over-desire, unchecked desire, a desire to enjoy things, a desire to obtain things, a desire to, to achieve things that consumes you, that when your eyes see the next latest and greatest, you can't wait until you get it. Or that when you should have eyes only for your wife, you have eyes for her in the screen or eyes for her and the co-worker. Or you think just this one more promotion, this one more accolade, this one more notch in my belt and I'll be satisfied. And you get there and dissatisfaction just curls up in bed beside you and keeps you awake at night. If that is you, if that is you. One of two things, you have never known the perfect Christ who perfectly achieved the satisfaction you long for and hands it to you freely. Or you've known him, but you've drifted away from the Jesus who paid it all, whose wounds have healed you. And you now seek to live in your own achievements. Your own pleasures. Your own possessions. And if you're in the first, he calls you come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. If you're in the second category, he says to you, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest he will why why does it matter look at verse 17 and the world is passing away along with its over desires but whoever does the will of God abides forever you say Jerry what does that mean One day, every person in this room will stand before the judgment seat of God. All of us. In that line will be Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, Adolf Hitler, Saddam Hussein. We'll all be there. We will have, perhaps in our minds, perhaps not, the long list of accomplishments for years running. But when we get there, we will look at the judge, Christ. And he will look at us, regardless if you're Billy Graham or John Gibbs. He will look, and if the blood is applied to your life, he'll say, well done, 
good and faithful servant. Enter into the joys of the Lord. That goes for Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, and John Gibbs. And if he looks in the blood that his wounds, Peter says, has, has flowed over us and cleansed us, if it is not applied, he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. Period. None of us will have a leg up. We will enter by the grace of God or we will depart by our own refusal of that grace. Steele Johnson and David Budiah, some of you may have seen them in the Olympic trials. For some reason, at their early age in life, they get it. They just competed maybe two weeks ago, qualified for the Olympics. Check out their dive. Listen closely to their interview afterwards. Check it out. These questions may sound intensely practical, but I think they help bring home these three unchecked areas of desire that can rule and reign in our lives. So I'm going to ask you three very practical questions. Very practical. All right. Number one, do you eat too much? Number two, do you work or do you spend or save too much? Number three, do you work or study too much.